Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 16. Chapter 114. The Gilder. Penetrating further and further into the heart of the Japanese cruising ground, the Pequod was soon all astir in the fishery. Often, in mild, pleasant weather, for twelve, fifteen, eighteen, and twenty hours on the stretch, they were engaged in the boats, steadily pulling, or sailing, or paddling after the whales, or for an interlude of sixty or seventy minutes calmly awaiting their uprising, though with but small success for their pains. At such times, under an abated sun, afloat all day upon smooth, slow, heaving swells, seated in his boat, light as a birch canoe, and so sociably mixing with the soft waves themselves, that, like hearthstone cats, they purr against the gunwale, these are the times of dreamy quietude, when, beholding the tranquil beauty and brilliancy of the ocean's skin, one forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath it and would not willingly remember that this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. These are the times when in his whaleboat the rover softly feels a certain filial, confident land-like feeling towards the sea, that he regards it as so much flowery earth, and the distant ship revealing only the tops of her masts seems struggling forward not through high rolling waves, but through the tall grass of a rolling prairie, as when the western immigrants' horses only showed their erected ears while the hidden bodies widely weighed through the amazing verdure. The long-drawn virgin veils, the mild blue hillsides, as over these there steals the hush, the hum, you almost swear that play-wearied children lie sleeping in these solitudes in some glad May time when the flowers of the woods are plucked, and all this mixes with your most mystic mood, so the fact and fancy, halfway meeting, interpenetrate, and form one seamless whole. Nor did such soothing scenes, however temporary, fail of at least as temporary an effect on Ahab. But if these secret golden keys did seem to open in him his own secret golden treasuries, yet did his breath upon them prove but tarnishing. O oh, grassy glades, ever vernal endless landscapes in the soul, in ye, though long parched by the dead drought of an earthly life, in ye men yet may roll, like young horses in new morning clover, and for some few fleeting moments feel the cool dew of the life immortal on them. Would to God these blessed calms would last, but the mingled mingling threads of life are woven by warp and woof, Calms crossed by storms, a storm for every calm. There is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations and at the last one pause, 
through infancy's unconscious spell, boyhood's thoughtless faith, adolescence's doubt, the common doom, then skepticism, then disbelief, resting at last in manhood's pondering repose of if. But once gone through, we trace the round again, and our infants, boys, and men, and ifs, eternally. Where lies the final harbor whence we unmoor no more? In what rapt either sails the world, of which the weariest will never weary? Where is the foundling's father hidden? Our souls are like those orphans whose unwedded mothers die in bearing them. The secret of our paternity lies in their grave and we must there to learn it. At that same day, too, gazing far down from his boat's side into that same golden sea, Starbuck lowly murmured, Loveliness unfathomable, as ever lover saw in his young bride's eye. Tell me not of thy teeth-teared sharks and thy kidnapping cannibal ways. Let faith oust fact, let fancy oust memory. I look deep down and do believe. And stub, fish-like, with sparkling scales, leaped up in that same golden light. I am Stubb, and Stubb has his history, but here Stubb takes oaths that he has always been jolly. Chapter 115 The Pequod Meets the Bachelor And jolly enough were the sights and sounds that came bearing down before the wind some few weeks after Ahab's harpoon had been welded. It was a Nantucket ship, the Bachelor, which had just wedged in her last cask of oil and bolted down her bursting hatches, and now, in glad holiday apparel, was joyously, though somewhat vaingloriously, sailing round the widely separated ships on the ground previous to pointing her prow for home. The three men at her masthead wore long streamers of narrow red bunting at their hats. From the stern, a whaleboat was suspended, bottom down, and hanging captive from the bowsprit was seen the long lower jaw of the last whale they had slain. Signals, ensigns, and jacks of all colors were flying from her rigging on every side. Sideways lashed in each of her three basketed tops were two barrels of sperm, above which, in her topmast cross-trees, you saw slender breakers of the same precious fluid, and nailed to her main trunk was a brazen lamp. As was afterwards learned, the bachelor had met with the most surprising success, all the more wonderful for that while cruising in the same seas, numerous other vessels had gone entire months without securing a single fish. Not only had barrels of beef and bread been given away to make room for the far more valuable sperm, but additional supplemental casks had been bartered for from the ships she had met, and these were stored along the deck and in the captain's and officer's staterooms. Even the cabin table itself had been knocked into kindling wood, and the cabin mess dined off the broad head of an oil butt, lashed down to the floor for a centerpiece. In the forecastle, the sailors had actually cocked and pitched their chests, and filled them, it was humorously added, that the cook had clapped a head on his largest boiler and filled it, that the steward had plugged his spare coffee pot and filled it, that the harpooners had headed the sockets of their irons and filled them, that indeed everything was filled with sperm, except the captain's pantaloons' pockets, and those he reserved to thrust his hands into, in self-complacent testimony of his entire satisfaction. As this glad ship of good luck bore down upon the moody Pequod, the barbarian sound of enormous drums came from her forecastle, and drawing still nearer, a crowd of men were seen standing round her huge tripods, which, covered with the parchment-like poke or stomach skin of the black fish, gave forth a loud roar to every stroke of the clenched hands of the crew. 
On the quarterdeck, the mates and harpooners were dancing with the olive-hued girls who had eloped with them from the Polynesian Isles, while suspended in an ornamented boat firmly secured aloft between the foremast and the mainmast, three Long Island Negroes with glittering fiddle bows of whale ivory were presiding over the hilarious jig. Meanwhile, others of the ship's company were tumultuously busy at the masonry of the triworks from which the huge pots had been removed. You would almost have thought they were pulling down the cursed Bastille, such wild cries they raised, as the now useless brick and mortar were being hurled into the sea. Lord and master over all this scene, the captain stood erect on the ship's elevated quarterdeck, so that the whole rejoicing drama was full before him and seemed merely contrived for his own individual diversion. And Ahab, he too was standing on his quarterdeck, shaggy and black with a stubborn gloom, and as the two ships crossed each other's wakes, one all jubilations for things past, the other all forebodings as to things to come, their two captains in themselves impersonated the whole striking contrast of the scene. "'Come aboard! Come aboard!' cried the gay bachelor's commander, lifting a glass and bottle in the air. "'Hast thou seen the white whale?' gritted Ahab in reply. "'No! Only heard of him, but don't believe in him at all,' said the other good-naturedly. "'Come aboard!' "'Thou art too damn jolly. Sail on! Hast lost any men?' "'Not enough to speak of! Two islanders, that's all. But come aboard, old hearty! Come along! I'll soon take that black from your brow! Come along, will ye? Mary's the play, and a full ship, and homeward bound! How wondrous familiar is a fool!' muttered Ahab, then aloud, Thou art a full ship, and homeward bound, thou sayest. Well, then call me an empty ship, and outward bound. So go thy ways, and I will go mine. Forward there, set all sail, and keep her to the wind. And thus, while the one ship went cheerily before the breeze, the other stubbornly fought against it. And so the two vessels parted, the crew of the Pequod looking with grave, lingering glances towards the receding bachelor. But the bachelor's men never heeding their gaze for the lively revelry they were in, and as Ahab, leaning over the taffrail, eyed the homeward-bound craft, he took from his pocket a small vial of sand, and then, looking from the ship to the vial, seemed thereby bringing the two remote associations together, for that vial was filled with Nantucket soundings. Chapter 116 the dying whale. Not seldom in this life when, on the right side, fortune's favorites sail close by us, we, though all a droop before, catch somewhat of the rushing breeze and joyfully fill our bagging sails out. So seemed it with the Pequod, for next day, after encountering the gay bachelor, whales were seen and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab. It was far down the afternoon when all the spearings of the crimson fight were done, and floating in the lovely sunset sea and sky, sun and whale both stilly died together. Then such a sweetness and such plaintiveness, such inwreathing orisons curled up in the rosy air, that it almost seemed as if far over from the deep green convent valleys of the Manila Islands the Spanish land breeze, wantonly turned sailor, had gone to sea freighted with these vesper hymns. Soothed again, but only soothed to deeper gloom, Ahab, who had sterned off from the whale, sat intently watching his final wanings from the now tranquil boat. 
For that strange spectacle, observable in all sperm whales dying, the turning sunwards of the head, and so expiring, that strange spectacle beheld of such a placid evening, somehow to Ahab conveyed a wondrousness unknown before. He turns, and turns him to it. How slowly, but how steadfastly, his homage rendering and invoking brow, from his last dying motions. He too worships fire, most faithful, broad, baronial vassal of the sun. Oh, that these two favoring eyes should see these two favoring sights. Look, here, far waterlocked, beyond all hum of human weal and woe, in these most candid and impartial seas, where to traditions no rocks furnish tablets, where for long Chinese ages the billows have still rolled on speechless and unspoken to, as stars that shine upon the Niger's unknown source. Here, too, life dies sunwards full of faith. But see, no sooner dead than death whirls round the corpse and heads some other way. O oh, thou dark Hindu half of nature, who of drowned bones hast builded thy separate throne somewhere in the heart of these unverdured seas. Thou art an infidel, thou queen, and too truly speaking to me in the wild slaughtering typhoon and the harshest burial of its after-calm. Nor has this thy whale sunwards turned his dying head, and then gone round again without a lesson to me. O oh, trebly hooped and welded hip of power, O oh, high aspiring rainbow jet, that one strivest, this one jettest all in vain. In vain, O oh whale, dost thou seek intercedings with yon all-quickening sun, that only calls forth life but gives it not again. Yet dost thou, darker half, rock me with a prouder, if a darker faith. All thy unnameable interminglings float beneath me here. I am buoyed by breaths of once-living things exhaled as air, but water now. Then hail, forever hail, O sea, in whose eternal tossings the wild fowl finds his only rest. Born of earth, yet suckled by the sea, though hill and valley mothered me, ye billows are my foster brothers. Chapter 117. The Whale Watch. The four whales slain that evening had died wide apart, one far to windward, one less distant to leeward, one ahead, one astern. These last three were brought alongside ere nightfall, but the windward one could not be reached till morning, and the boat that had killed it lay by its side all night. And that boat was Ahab's. The waif-pole was thrust upright into the dead whale's spout-hole, and the lantern hanging from its top cast a troubled, flickering glare upon the black, glossy back, and far out upon the midnight waves, which gently chafed the whale's broad flank, like soft surf upon a beach. Ahab and all his boat's crew seemed asleep but the Parsi, who crouched in the bow sat watching the sharks that spectrally played round the whale and tapped the light cedar planks with their tails. A sound like the moaning in squadrons over asphaltites of unforgiven ghosts of Gomorrah ran shuddering through the air. Started from his slumbers, Ahab face to face saw the Parsi, and hooped round by the gloom of the night, they seemed the last men in a flooded world. I have dreamed it again, said he. Of the hearses? Have I not said, old man, that neither hearse nor coffin can be thine? And who are hearse that die in the sea? 
But I said, old man, that ere thou couldst die on this voyage, two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea, the first not made by mortal hands, and visible wood of the last one must be grown in America. Ay, ay, a strange sight, that, Parsi, a hearse and its plumes floating over the ocean with waves for the pallbearers. Ha! Such a sight we shall not soon see. Believe it or not, thou canst not die till it be seen, old man. And what was that saying about thyself? Though it comes to the last, I shall go before thee, thy pilot. And where thou art so gone before, if that ever befell, then e'er I can follow, thou must still appear to me, to pilot me still. Was it not so? Well, well then, did I believe all ye say, O oh, my pilot? I have here two pledges that I shall yet slay Moby Dick and survive it. Take another pledge, old man, said the Parsi, as his eyes lighted up like fireflies in the gloom. Hemp only can kill thee. The gallows, you mean. I am immortal then on land and on sea, cried Ahab with a laugh of derision. Immortal on land and on sea. Both were silent again, as one man. The gray dawn came on, and the slumbering crew arose from the boat's bottom, ere noon the dead whale was brought to the ship. Chapter 118 The Quadrant The season for the line at length drew near, and every day when Ahab, coming from his cabin, cast his eyes aloft, the vigilant helmsman would ostentatiously handle his spokes, and the eager mariners quickly run to the braces and would stand there with all their eyes centrally fixed on the nailed doubloon, impatient for the order to point the ship's prow for the equator. In good time the order came. It was hard upon high noon, and Ahab, seated in the bows of his high-hoisted boat, was about taking his wonted daily observation of the sun to determine his latitude. Now, in that Japanese sea, the days in summer are as freshets of effulgences. That unblinkingly vivid Japanese sun seems the blazing focus of the glassy ocean's immeasurable burning glass. The sky looks lacquered. Clouds there are none. The horizon floats, and this nakedness of unrelieved radiance is as the insufferable splendors of God's throne. Well that Ahab's quadrant was furnished with colored glasses, through which to take sight of that solar fire. So, swinging his seated form to the roll of the ship, and with his astrological-looking instrument placed to his eye, he remained in that posture for some moments to catch the precise instant when the sun should gain its precise meridian. Meanwhile, while his whole attention was absorbed, the Parsi was kneeling beneath him on the ship's deck, and with face thrown up like Ahab's, was eyeing the same sun with him, only the lids of his eyes half-hooded their orbs, and his wild face was subdued to an earthly passionlessness. At length the desired observation was taken, and with his pencil upon his ivory leg, Ahab soon calculated what the, his latitude must be at that precise instant. Then, falling into a moment's reverie, he again looked up towards the sun and murmured to himself, Thou sea-mark, thou high and mighty pilot, thou tellest me truly where I am, but canst thou at least hint where I shall be? Or canst thou tell me where some other living thing besides me is at this moment living? Where is Moby Dick? This instant thou must be eyeing him. These eyes of mine look into the very eye that is now beholding him, aye, and into that eye that is ever now equally beholding the objects of the unknown, thither side of thee, thou son. 
Then, gazing at his quadrant and handling one after the other its numerous Kabbalistic contrivances, he pondered again and muttered, Foolish toy! Baby's plaything of haughty admirals and commodores and captains! The world brags of thee and thy cunning and might, but what, after all, canst thou do but tell the poor pitiful point where thou thyself happenest to be on this wide planet, and the hand that holds thee, no, not one jot more! Thou canst not tell me where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon, and yet, with thy impotence, thou insultest the sun. Science! Curse thee, thou vain toy, and cursed all the things that canst man's eyes aloft to that heaven, whose live vividness but scorches him, as these old eyes have now scorched with thy light. O sun! Level by nature to this earth's horizon are the glances of man's eyes, not shot from the crown of his head, as by God had meant him to gaze into the firmament. Curse thee, thou quadrant, dashing it to the deck. No longer will I guide my earthly way by thee. The level ship's compass and the level dead reckoning by log and by line, these shall conduct me and show me my place on the sea. I lighting from the boat to the deck. Thus I trample on thee, thou paltry thing that feebly pointest on high. Thus I spit and destroy thee. As the frantic old man thus spoke and thus trampled with his live and dead feet, a sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab and a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself, these passed over the mute, motionless Parsi's face. Unobserved, he rose and glided away, while, awestruck by the aspect of their commander, the seamen clustered together in the forecastle, till Ahab, troublingly pacing the deck, shouted out, To the braces! Up helm! Square in! In an instant the yard swung round, and as the ship half-wheeled upon her heel, her three firm-seated graceful masts, erectly poised upon her long-ribbed hull, seemed as three horati pirouetting on one sufficient steed. Standing between the night heads, Starbuck watched the Pequod's tumultuous way, and Ahab's also, as he went lurching along the deck. I've sat before the dense coal fire and watched it all aglow, full of its tormented flaming life, and I've seen it wane at last down, down to dumbest dust. Old man of oceans, of all this fiery life of thine, what will at length remain but one little heap of ashes? Hey, cried Stubb, but sea coal ashes might do that, Mr. Starbuck, sea coal, not your common charcoal. Well, well, I heard Ahab's mutter. Here, someone thrusts these cards in these old hands of mine, swears I must play them, but no one others. But damn me, Ahab, but thou actest right, and live in the game, and die in it. Chapter 119 The Candles Warmest climes but nurse the cruelest fangs. The tiger of Bengal crouches in spiced groves of ceaseless verdure. Skies the most effulgent but basket the deadliest thunders. Gorgeous Cuba knows tornadoes that never swept tame northern lands. So too it is that in these resplendent Japanese seas the mariner encounters the direst of all storms, the typhoon. It will sometimes burst from out that cloudless sky like an exploding bomb upon a dazed and sleepy town. Towards evening of that day, the Pequod was torn of her canvas, and bare-polled was left to fight a typhoon which had struck her directly ahead. When darkness came on, sky and sea roared and split with the thunder, and blazed with the lightning that showed the disabled masts fluttering here and there with the rags which first fury of the tempest had left for its aftersport. 
Holding by a shroud, Starbuck was standing on the quarterdeck at every flash of the lightning glancing aloft to see what additional disaster might have befallen the intricate hamper there, while Stubb and Flask were directing the men in the higher hoisting and firmer lashing of the boats. But all their pains seemed not. Though lifted to the very top of the cranes, the windward quarterboat, Ahab's, did not escape. A great rolling sea, dashing high up against the reeling ship's high teetering sides, stove in the boat's bottom at the stern and left it again, all dripping through like a sieve. Bad work, bad work, Mr. Starbuck, said Stubb, regarding the wreck. But the sea will have its way. Stubb for one can fight it. You see, Mr. Starbuck, a wave has such a great long start before it leaps. All around the world it turns and runs and then comes in the spring. But as for me, a start's a start and all I mean to have to meet it. We're just across the deck there, but never mind, it's all in fun, as so the old song says. Oh, jolly is the gale, and a joker is the whale, a flourishing in his tail. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jussy, jokey, hokey pokey lad is the ocean, oh. The scud all a-flying, there's his flip only foaming when he stirs in the spicing. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey-pokey lad is the ocean, oh. Thunder splits his ships, but he only smacks his lips, a tasting of this flip. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey-pokey lad is the ocean, oh. A vast stop cried Starbuck. Let the typhoon sing and strike his harp here with our rigging, but if thou art a brave man, thou wilt hold thy peace. But I'm not a brave man. Never said I was a brave man. I'm a coward, and I sing to keep up my spirits. And I tell you what that is, Mr. Starbuck. There's no way to stop my singing in this world but to cut my throat. And when that's done, ten to one, I'll sing you the doxology for a wind-up. Madam, look through my eyes if thou hast none of thine own. What? How can you see better of a dark night than anybody else, never mind how foolish? Yeah, cried Starbuck, seizing Stubb by the shoulder and pointing his hand towards the weather bow. Mockst thou not that the gale comes from the eastward, the very course Ahab is to run for Moby Dick? The strange course he swung to this day noon, now mark his boat there. Where is that stove? In the stern sheets, man, where is he want to stand? His standpoint is stove, man. Now jump overboard and sing away if thou must. I don't have understand ye. What's in the wind? Yes, yes. Round the Cape of Good Hope is the shortest way to Nantucket, soliloquized Starbuck, suddenly heedless of Stubb's question. The gale that now handles at us to stave us in, we can turn it into a fair wind that will drive us towards home. Yonder, to windward, all is blackness of doom, but to leeward, homeward, I can see it lightens up there, but not with the lightning. At that moment, in one of the intervals of profound darkness following the flashes, a voice was heard at his side, and almost at the same instant a volley of thunder peals rolled overhead. Who's there? Old thunder, said Ahab, groping his way along the bulwarks to his pivot hole, but suddenly finding his path made plain to him by elbowed lances of fire. Now as the lightning rod to a spire on shore is intended to carry off the perilous fluid into the soil, so the kindred rod at which at sea some ships carry to each mast is intended to conduct it into the water. But as this conductor must descend to considerable depth that at its end may avoid all contact with the hull, and as moreover if kept constantly towing there, it would be liable to many mishaps besides interfering not a little with some of the rigging, 
and more or less impeding the vessel's way in the water. Because of all of this, the lower parts of a ship's lightning rods are not always overboard, but are generally made in long slender links so as to be more readily hauled up into the chains outside, or thrown down into the sea as occasion may require. The rods! The rods! cried Starbuck to the crew, suddenly admonished to a vigilance by the vivid lightning that had just been darting flambeau to light Ahab to his post. Are they overboard? Drop them over, fore and aft, quick! Last! cried Ahab. Let's have a fair play here. Though we be the weaker side, I'll yet contribute to the raised rods on the Himalayas and the Andes, that all the world may be secured, but out on privileges. Let them be, sir. Look aloft, cried Starbuck. The corpusants, the corpusants. All the yard arms were tipped with a pallid fire, and touched at each tri-pointed lightning rod end with three tapering white flames. Each of the three tall masts was silently burning in that sulfurous air like three gigantic wax tapers before an altar. Bust the boat, let it go, cried Stubb at this instant as a swashing sea heaved up under his own little craft, so that its gunwale violently jammed his hand as he was passing a lashing. Blast it! But slipping backward on the deck, his uplifted eyes caught the flames and immediately shifted his tone. He cried, The Corbelizons have mercy on us all! To sailors, oaths are household words. They will swear in the trace of a calm, and in the teeth of the tempest they will imprecate curses from the topsail yardarms when most they teeter over to a seething sea. But in all my voyaging, seldom have I heard a common oath when God's burning finger has been laid upon the ship. When his meeny meeny tekel upharshim has been woven into the shrouds and the cordage. While this pallidness was burning aloft, few words were heard from the enchanted crew, who in one thick cluster stood upon the forecastle, all their eyes gleaming on the pale phosphorescence like faraway constellation of stars. Relieved against the ghostly night, the gigantic jet negro Dago loomed up to thrice his real stature, and seemed the black cloud from which the thunder had come. The parted mouth of Tashtigo revealed his shark-white teeth, which strangely gleamed as if they too had been tipped by corpusence. While lit up by a preternatural light, Queequeg's tattooing burned like a satanic blue flames on his body. The tableau all waned at last with the pallidness aloft, and once more the Pequod and every soul on her decks were wrapped in a pall. A moment or two passed when Starbuck, going forward, pushed against someone. It was Stubb. What thinkest thou now, man? I heard thy cry. It was not the same in the song. No, no, it wasn't. I said all the corpusants have mercy on us all, and I hope they will still. But do they have mercy on long faces? Hey, have they no bowels for a laugh? And look ye, Mr. Starbuck. But it's too dark to look. Hear me then. I take that masthead flame we saw for a sign of good luck, for those masts were rooted in a hold that was going to be chock-a-block with sperm oil, do you see? And so all that sperm will work up into the mast like sap in a tree. Yes, these three masts will yet be as three spermaceti candles. That's a good promise we saw. At that moment, Starbuck caught sight of Stubb's face slowly beginning to glimmer into sight. Glancing upward, he cried, See! See! And once more, the high, tapering flames were beheld with what seemed redoubled supernaturalness in their pallor. The corporations have mercy on us all, cried Stubb again. 
At the base of the mainmast, full beneath the doubloon and the flame, the Parsi was kneeling in Ahab's front, but with his head bowed away from him, while nearby, from the arched and overhanging rigging, where they had just been engaged securing a spar, a number of seamen, arrested by the glare, now cohered together, and hung pendulous like a knot of numbered wasps from a drooping orchard twig. In various enchanted attitudes, like the standing or stepping or running skeletons in Herculaneum, others remained rooted to the deck, but all their eyes upcast. Hey, hey, men, cried Ahab, look up and mark it well. The white flame but lights the way to the white whale. Hand me those mainmast links there. I would fain feel this pulse, and let mine beat against it, blood against fire. So... Then turning, the last link held fast in his left hand, he put his foot upon the Parsi, and with fixed upward eye and high-flung right arm, he stood erect before the lofty tri-pointed trinity of the flames. Ho, oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on these seas I as Persian once did worship, fill in the sacramental act so burned by thee, that to this hour I bear the scar. I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence wilt thou be kind, and ain thou for hate thou canst but kill, and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. I own thy speechless, placeless power, but to the last gasp of my earthquake life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personal, impersonal, a personality stands here, though but a point at best, whencesoever I came, wheresoever I go, yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me, and feels her royal rights. But war is pain, and hate is woe. Come in thy lowest form of love, and I will kneel and kiss thee. But at thy highest, come at mere supernal power, and thou launchest navies of full-freighted words. That's that in her. That still remains indifferent. O oh, thou clear spirit, of thy fire thou madest me, and like a true child of fire, I breathe it back to thee. Sudden repeated flashes of lightning, the nine flames leap lengthwise to thrice their previous height. Ahab, with the rest, closes his eyes, his right hand pressed hard upon them. I own thy speechless, placeless power, said I not so? Nor was it wrung from me, nor do I now drop these links. Thou canst blind, but I can then grope. Thou canst consume, but I can then be ashes. Take the homage of these poor eyes, and shatter hands. I would not take it. The lightning flashes through my skull, mine eyeballs ache and ache. My whole beaten brain seems as beheaded and rolling on some stunning ground. Oh, oh, ye blindfold, yet will I... I talk thee in. Light though thou be, thou leapest out of darkness, but I am darkness leaping out of light, leaping out of thee. The javelins cease, open eyes, see, or not. There burn the flames, O oh, thou magnanimous, now I do glory in my genealogy. But thou art but fiery father, my sweet mother I know not. O oh, cruel, what hast thou done with her? Thou lies my puzzle, but thine is greater. Thou knowest not how came ye, hence thou callest thyself unbegotten. Certainly knowest not thy beginning, hence callest thyself unbegun. 
I know that of me, which thou knowest not of thyself, O thou omnipotent. There is some unfusing thing beyond thee, thou clear spirit, to whom all thy eternity is but time, all thy createdness mechanical. Through thee, thy flaming self, my scorched eyes do dimly see it. O thou foundling fire, thou hermit unmemorial, thou too hast incommunicable riddle. Thy unparticipated grief, here again with haughty agony, I read my sire. Leap, leap up and lick the sky, I leap with thee, I burn with thee, would fain be welded to thee, defyingly I worship thee. The boat, the boat, cried Starbuck. Look at thy boat, old man. Ahab's harpoon, the one forged at Perth's fire, remained firmly lashed in its conspicuous crotch, so that it projected beyond his whaleboat's bow, but the sea that had stove his boat had caused the loose leather sheaf to drop off, and from the keen steel barb there now came a leveled flame of pale forked fire. As the silent harpoon burned there like a serpent's tongue, Starbuck grasped Ahab by the arm. God, God is against the old man. Forbear, tis an ill voyage, ill begun, ill continued. Let me square the odds while we may, old man, and make a fair wind of it homewards to go on a better voyage than this. Overhearing Starbuck, the panic-stricken crew instantly ran to the braces, though not a sail was left aloft. For a moment, all the aghast mate's thoughts seemed there as they raised a half-mutinous cry, but dashing the rattling lightning links to the deck and snatching the burning harpoon, Ahab waved it like a torch among them, swearing to transfix with it the first sailor that but cast loose a rope's end. Petrified by his aspect, and still more shrinking from the fiery dart that he held, the men fell back in dismay, and Ahab again spoke. All your oaths to hunt the white whale are as binding as mine. In heart, soul, and body, lungs, and life, old Ahab is bound. And that ye may know to what tune this heart beats, look ye here, thus I blow out the last fear. And with one blast of his breath he extinguished the flame. As in the hurricane that sweeps the plain, men fly the neighborhood of some lone, gigantic elm whose very height and strength but render it so much the more unsafe, because so much the more a mark for thunderbolts. So at those last words of Ahab's, many of the mariners did run from him in a terror of dismay. Chapter 120 The Deck towards the end of the first night watch. Ahab standing by the helm, Starbuck approaching him. We must send down the main topsail yard, sir. The band is working loose and the lee lift is half-stranded. Shall I strike it, sir? Strike nothing! Lash it! If I had skysail poles, I'd sway them up now. Sir, in God's name, sir! Well, the anchors are working, sir. Shall I get them inboard? Strike nothing and stir nothing, but lash everything. The wind rises, but it has not got up to my tablelands yet. Quick and see to it! By masts and keels, he takes me for the hunchbacked skipper of some coasting smack. Send down my main topsail yard. Ho, glue pots! Loftiest trucks were made for now wildest winds, and this brain truck of mine now sails amid the cloud scud. Shall I strike that? Oh, none but cowards send down their brain trucks in tempest time. What harouche aloft there? I would e'en take it for the sublime. Did I not know that the colic is a noisy malady? Oh, take medicine! Take medicine!
Chapter 121 Midnight, the Forecastle Bulwarks No, stub. You may pound that knot there as much as you please, but you will never pound into me what you were just now saying. And how long ago is it since you say the very contrary? Didn't you once say that whatever ship Ahab sails in, that ship should pay something extra for its insurance policy, just as though that were loaded with powder barrels aft and boxes of lucifers forward? Stop now, didn't you say so? Well, I suppose I did, but then... I've never changed my flesh since that time, or not my mind. Besides, supposing we are loaded with powder barrels aft and lucifers forward, how the devil could the lucifers get a fire of the drenching spray here? Well, I'm a little man, you have pretty red hair, but you couldn't get a fire now. Shake yourself your Aquarius or the water bearer flask, but I feel pictures of your coat collar. Don't you see then that those extra, extra risks for the marine insurance companies have extra guarantees? Here are a hydrant's flask, but hark again and I'll answer ye the other thing. First, take your leg off the crown of the anchor there, though so I can pass the rope now, listen. What's the mighty difference between holding a mass lightning rod in a storm and standing in close by to a mass that hasn't got any lightning rod at all in a storm? Don't you see, you timberhead, that no harm could come to the holder of the rod unless the mast is first struck? What are you talking about then? Not one ship in a hundred carries rods, and Ahab, hey man, all of us, we're in no danger then. In my poor opinion, than all the crews of ten thousand ships now sailing the seas. Well, you, King Post, you, I suppose you would have every man in the world go around with a small lightning rod running up the corner of his hat like a militia officer's skewered father, and trailing behind him like a sash. Why don't you be sensible, Flask? It's easy to be sensible. Why don't you then? Any man can half an eye can be sensible. I don't know that, Stub. You sometimes find it rather hard. Yes, well, fellow soaked through. It's hard to be sensible, there's a fact. And I'm about drenched with this spray. Never mind, catch a tune there and pat it. Seems to me we are lashing down these anchors now as if we're never going to be used again. Tying two anchors here, Flask, seems to be like tying a man's hands behind him, and what big generous hands they are, to be sure. These are your iron fists, eh? What a hold to have, too. I wonder, Flask, whether the world is anchored anywhere. If she is, she swings with an uncommon long cable, though. There, hammer that knot down, and we're done. So, next to the touching land, lightning on deck is the most satisfactory. I say, just wring out my jacket skirts, will ye? Thank you. They laugh at the long togs so, Flask, but it seems to me as long as a tailcoat ought to always be worn in all storms and afloat. The tails tapering down that way serve to carry off the water, do you see? Same with cocked hats. The cocks form gable ends and eave troughs, Flask. No more monkey jackets and tarpaulins for me. I must mount a swallowtail and drive down a beaver. So, hello, whew! There goes my tarpaulin overboard. Lord, Lord, that the winds that come from heaven should be a so unmannerly. This is a nasty night, lad. Chapter 122 Midnight, aloft, thunder and lightning. The main topsail yard, Tashtigo passing new lashings around it. Hum, hum, hum. Stop that thunder. Plenty too much thunder up there. What's the use of thunder? Mm, mm, mm. We don't want thunder. We want rum. Give us a glass of rum. Mm, mm, mm. Chapter 123. The Musket. During the most violent shocks of the typhoon, the man at the Pequod's jawbone tiller had several times been reelingly hurled to the deck by its spasmodic motions, even though preventer tackles had been attached to it, for they were slack, because some play in the tiller was indispensable. In a severe gale like this, while the ship is but a tossed shuttlecock to the breeze, it is by no means uncommon to see the needles in the compasses at intervals go round and round. It was thus with the Pequod's. At almost every shock, the helmsman had not failed to notice the whirling velocity with which they revolved upon the cards. 
It is a sight that hardly anyone can behold without some sort of unwanted emotion. Some hours after midnight, the typhoon abated so much that through the strenuous exertions of Starbuck and Stubb, one engaged forward and the other aft, the shivered remnants of the jib and fore and main topsails were cut adrift from the spars and went eddying away to leeward, like the feathers of an albatross, which sometimes are cast to the winds when that storm-tossed bird is on the wing. The three corresponding new sails were now bent and reefed, and a storm trysail was set further aft so that the ship soon went through the water with some precision again, and the course, for the present east-southeast, which he was to steer, if practicable, was once more given to the helmsman. For during the violence of the gale he had only steered according to its vicissitudes. But as he was now bringing the ship as near her course as possible, watching the compass meanwhile, lo, a good sign, the wind seemed coming round astern, ay, the foul breeze became fair. Instantly the yards were squared to the lively song of, Ho, the fair wind, o ye ho, cheerly men. The crew singing for joy that so promising an event should so soon have falsified the evil portents preceding it. In compliance with the standing order of his commander, to remove immediately and at any one of the twenty-four hours any decided change in the affairs of the deck, Starbuck had no sooner trimmed the yards to the breeze, however reluctantly and gloomily, than he mechanically went below to appraise Captain Ahab of the circumstance. Ere knocking at his stateroom, he involuntarily paused before it a moment. The cabin lamp, taking long swings this way and that, was burning fitfully and casting fitful shadows upon the old man's bolted door, a thin one with fixed blinds inserted in place of upper panels. The isolated subterraneousness of the cabin made a certain humming silence to reign there, though it was hooped round by all the roar of the elements. The loaded muskets in the rack were shiningly revealed, so they stood upright against the forward bulkhead. Starbuck was an honest, upright man, but out of Starbuck's heart, at that instant when he saw the muskets, there strangely evolved an evil thought, but oh so blent with its neutral or good accompaniments that for an instant he hardly knew it for itself. He would have shot me once, he murmured. Yes, there's the very musket that he pointed at me. That one with the studded stock, let me touch it, lift it. Strange that I, who have handled so many deadly lances, strange that I should shake so now. Loaded? I must see. Eh, eh, and the powder in the pan, but that's not good. Best spill it. Wait, I'll cure myself of this. I'll hold the musket boldly while I think. I come to report a fair wind to him, but how fair? Fair for death and doom, that's fair for Moby Dick. It's a fair wind that's only fair for that accursed fish. The very tube he pointed at me. The very one. This one. I hold it here. He would have killed me with this very thing I handle now, eh? And he would fain kill all his crew. Does he not say that he will strike his spars to any gale? Has he not dashed his heavenly quadrant, and in these same perilous seas gropes he not his way by mere dead reckoning of the arrow-abounding log? And in this very typhoon did he not swear that he would have no lightning rods? But shall this crazed old man be tamely suffered to drag the whole ship's company down to doom with him? Yes, it would make him a willful murderer of thirty men and more. If this ship come to any deadly harm, and come to deadly harm, my soul swears this ship will, if Ahab have his way, if then he were this instant put aside, that crime would be his. Ha! 
Is he muttering in his sleep? Yes, just there. In there. He's sleeping. Sleeping? Aye, but still alive. And soon awake again. I can't withstand thee then, old man. No reasoning. Not remonstrance. Not entreaty wilt thou hearken to. All this thou scornest. Flat obedience to thine own flat commands. This is all thou breathest. Ay, and sayest the men have vowed thy vow. Sayest all of us are Ahabs. Great God forbid. But is there no other way, no lawful way, make him a prisoner to be taken home? What hope to wrest this old man's living power from his own living hands? Only a fool would try it. Say you opinioned even. Knotted all over with ropes and hosiers, chained down to ring bolts in this cabin floor, he would be more hideous than a caged tiger then. I could not endure the sight, could not possibly fly his howlings, all comfort, sleep itself, inestimable reason would leave me on the long, intolerable voyage. What then remains? The land is hundreds of leagues away, and locked Japan the nearest. I stand alone here on an open sea with two oceans and a whole continent between me and law. Aye, aye, tis so. Is heaven a murderer then? When its lightning strikes, a would-be murderer in his bed, tindering sheets and skin together? And would I be a murderer then if... And slowly, stealthily, and half sideways looking, he placed the loaded musket's end against the door. On this level, Ahab's hammock swings within, his head this way. A touch, and Starbuck may survive to hug his wife and child again. Oh, Mary, Mary, boy, boy, boy. But if I wake thee not to death, old man, who can tell what unsounded depths Starbuck's body this day week may sink? With all the crew, great God, where art thou? Shall I? Shall I? The wind has gone down, shifted, sir. The fore and aft main top sails are reefed and set. She holds her course. Sir and all, oh, Moby Dick, I clutch at thy heart at last. Such were the sounds that now came hurtling from the old man's tormented sleep, as if Starbuck's voice had caused the long, dumb dream to speak. The yet-leveled musket shook like a drunkard's arm against the panel. Starbuck seemed wrestling with an angel, but, turning from the door, he placed the death-tube in its rack and left the place. He's too sound asleep, Mr. Stubb. Go down and wake him, and tell him. I must see to the deck here. Thou knowest what to say. Chapter 124. The Needle Next morning, the not-yet-subsided sea rolled in long, slow billows of mighty bulk, and striving in the Pequod's gurgling track pushed her on like giant's palms outspread. The strong, unstaggering breeze abounded so that sky and air seemed vast, outbellying sails. The whole world boomed before the wind. Muffled in the full morning light, the invisible sun was only known by the spread intensity of his place, where his bayonet rays moved on in stacks. Emblazonings as of crowned Babylonian kings and queens reigned over everything. The sea was as a crucible of molten gold that bubblingly leaps with light and heat. 
Long maintaining an enchanted silence, Ahab stood apart, and every time the teetering ship loweringly pitched down her bowsprit, he turned to eye the bright sun's rays produced ahead, and when she profoundly settled by the stern, he turned behind and saw the sun's rearward place, and how the same yellow rays were blending with his undeviating wake. Ha ha, my ship! Thou might as well be taken now for the sea chariot of the sun. Ho ho! All ye nations before my prow, I bring the sun to ye. Yoke on the further billows. Hello, a tandem I drive the sea. But suddenly reined back by some counterthought, he hurried towards the helm, huskily demanding how the ship was heading. East sou east, sir, said the frightened steersman. Thou liest! smiting him with his clenched fist, heading east in this hour, the morning, and the sun astern. Upon this every soul was confounded, for the phenomenon just then observed by Ahab had unaccountably escaped everyone else, but its very blinding palpableness must have been the case. Thrusting his head halfway into the binnacle, Ahab caught one glimpse of the compasses, his uplifted arms slowly fell. For a moment he almost seemed to stagger. Standing behind him, Starbuck looked, and lo, the two compasses pointed east, and the Pequod was as infallibly going west. But ere the first wild alarm could get out abroad among the crew, the old man with a rigid laugh exclaimed, Ha ha! I have it! It has happened before, Mr. Starbuck. Last night's thunder turned our compasses, that's all. Thou hast before now heard of such a thing, I take it. Aye, but never before has it happened to me, sir said the pale mate gloomily. Here it must needs be said that accidents like this have in more than one case occurred to ships in violent storms. The magnetic energy as developed in the mariner's needle is, as all know, essentially one with the electricity beheld in heaven. Hence it is not to be much marveled at that such things should be. Instances where the lightning has actually struck the vessel so as to smite down some of the spars and rigging, the effect upon the needle has at times been still more fatal, all its lodestone virtues being annihilated, so that the before magnetic steel was of no more use than an old wife's knitting needle. But in either case, the needle never again of itself recovers the original virtue thus marred or lost, and if the binnacle compasses be affected, the same fate reaches all the others that may be in the ship, even were the lowermost one inserted into the kelson. Deliberately standing before the binnacle and eyeing the transpointed compasses, the old man, with the sharp of his extended hand, now took the precise bearing of the sun, and satisfied that the needles were exactly inverted, shouted out his orders for the ship's course to be changed accordingly. The yards were hard up, and once more the Pequod thrust her undaunted bows into the opposite wind, for the supposed fair one had only been juggling her. Meanwhile, whatever were his own secret thoughts, Starbuck said nothing, but quietly he issued all requisite orders, while Stubb and Flask, who in some small degree seemed then to be sharing his feelings, likewise unmurmuringly acquiesced. As for the men, though some of them lowly rumbled, their fear of Ahab was greater than their fear of fate. But, as ever before, the pagan harpooners remained almost wholly unimpressed, or, if impressed, it was only with a certain magnetism shot into their congenial hearts from inflexible Ahabs. 
For a space, the old man walked the deck in rolling reveries, but chancing to slip with his ivory heel, he saw the crushed copper sight tubes of the quadrant he had the day before dashed to the deck. Thou poor, proud heaven-gazer and son's pilot, yesterday I wrecked thee, and today the compasses would fain have wrecked me, but so, so, but Ahab is lord over the level lodestone yet. Mr. Starbuck, a lance without a pole, a top maul, and the smallest of the sailmaker's needles, quick. Accessory, perhaps, to the impulse dictating the thing he was now about to do, were certain prudential mo motives, whose object might have been to revive the spirits of the crew by a stroke of, of his subtle skill, in a matter so wondrous as that of the inverted compasses. Besides, the old man well knew that to steer by trans-pointed needles, though clumsily practicable, was not a thing to be passed over by superstitious sailors, without some shudderings and evil portents. Men, said he, steadily turning upon the crew as the mate handed him the things he had demanded. My men, the thunder turned old Ahab's needles. But out of this bit of steel, Ahab can make one of his own that will point as true as any. Abashed glances of servile wonder were exchanged by the sailors as this was said, and with fascinated eyes they awaited whatever magic might follow. But Starbuck looked away. With a blow from the top maul, Ahab knocked off the steel head of the lance, and then handing to the mate the long iron rod remaining, bade him hold it upright, without its touching the deck. Then, with the maul, after repeatedly smiting the upper end of this iron rod, he placed the blunted needle edgewise on top of it, and less strongly hammered that several times. The mate still holding the rod as before. Then, going through some small strange motions with it, whether indispensable to the magnetizing of the steel or merely intended to augment the awe of the crew is uncertain, he called for linen thread and, moving to the binnacle, slipped out the two reverse needles there and horizontally suspended the sail needle by its middle over one of the compass cards. At first the steel went round and round, quivering and vibrating at either end, but at last it settled to its place. When Ahab, who had been intently watching for this result, stepped frankly back from the binnacle and pointed his stretched arm towards it, exclaimed, Look ye for yourselves, if Ahab be not lowered of the level lodestone. The sun is east, and that compass swears it. One after another they peered in, for nothing but their own eyes could persuade such ignorance as theirs, and one after another they slunk away. In his fiery eyes of scorn and triumph, you then saw Ahab in all his fatal pride. Chapter 125 The Log and Line While now the fated Pequod had been so long afloat this voyage, the log and line had been but seldom in use, owing to a confident reliance upon other means of determining the vessel's place. Some merchantmen, and many whalemen, especially when cruising, wholly neglect to heave the log, though at the same time, and frequently more for form's sake than anything else, regularly putting down upon the customary slate the course steered by the ship as well as the presumed average rate of progression every hour. It had been thus with the Pequod. The wooden reel and angular log attached hung, long untouched, just beneath the railing of the after bulwarks. Rains and spray had damped it, sun and wind had warped it, all the elements had combined to rot a thing that hung so idly. But heedless of all this, his mood seized Ahab as he happened to glance upon the reel not many hours after the magnet scene. 
and he remembered how his quadrant was no more, and recalled his frantic oath about the level log and line. The ship was sailing plungingly astern, the billows rolled in riots. Forward there, heave the log! Two seamen came, the golden-hued Tahitian and the grisly Manxman. Take the reel, one of ye, I'll heave. They went towards the extreme stern, on the ship's lee side, where the deck with the oblique energy of the wind was now almost dipping into the creamy, sidelong rushing sea. The Manxman took the reel, and, holding it high up by the projecting handle-ends of the spindle round which the spool of line revolved, so stood with that angular log hanging downwards till Ahab advanced to him. Ahab stood before him and was lightly unwinding some thirty or forty turns to form a preliminary handcoil to toss overboard, when the old Manxman, who was intently eyeing both him and the line, made bold to speak. "'Sir, I mistrust it. This line looks far gone. Long heat and wet have spoiled it.' "'To hold, old gentleman. Long heat and wet have they spoiled thee. Thou seems to hold. Or truer, perhaps, life holds thee, not thou it.' I hold the spool, sir, but just as my captain says. With these gray hairs of mine, tis not worth while disputing, especially with a superior, who will never confess. What's that? There now is a patched professor in Queen Nature's granite-founded college, but methinks he's too subservient. Where wert thou born? In the rocky Isle of Man, sir. Excellent. Thou's hit the word by that. I know not, sir, but I was born there. In the Isle of Man, hey? Well, the other way, it's good. Here's a man from man, a man born once independent man, and now unmanned of man. Which is sucked in, but what? Up with the reel. The dead blind wall butts all inquiring heads at last. Up with it, so. The log was heaved, the loose coils rapidly straightened out in a long dragging line astern, and then, instantly, the reel began to whirl. In turn, jerkingly raised and lowered by the rolling billows, the towing resistance of the log causing the old reelman to stagger strangely. Hold hard! Snap! The overstrained line sagged down in one long festoon, the tugging log was gone. I crush the quadrant, the thunder turns the needles, and now the mad sea parts the log line. But Ahab can mend it. Hull in there, Tahitian. Reel up, Manxman. And look ye, let the carpenter make another log, and mend thou the line. See to it. There he goes now. To him nothing's happened, but to me the skewer seems loosened out of the middle of the world. Haul in, haul in, Tahitian. These lines run whole, and whirling out, come in broken and dragging slow. Ha! Huh, pip! Come help, eh, Pip? Pip! Whom you call you, Pip? Pip jumped from the whaleboat. Pip's missing. Let's see now if you haven't fished him up here, fisherman. It drags hard. I guess he's holding on. Jerk him to he. Jerk him off. We haul him no cowards here. Oh, there's his arm just breaking the water. A hatchet, a hatchet. Cut off. We haul in no cowards here. Captain Ahab, sir, here's Pip trying to get on board again. Peace, thou crazy loon cried the maxman, seizing him by the arm, away from the quarter-deck. The greater idiot ever scolds the lesser, muttered Ahab, advancing. Hands off from that holiness. Where sayest thou, Pip, was boy? Astern, there, sir, astern, low, low. And who art thou, boy? I see not my reflection in the vacant pupils of thy eyes. O oh God, that man should be a thing for immortal souls to see through. What art thou, boy? Bellboy, sir. Ship's crier. Ding, dong, ding. Pip, pip, pip. One hundred pounds of clay reward for Pip. 
Five feet high, looks cowardly, quickest known by that. Ding, dong, ding, who's seen Pip the coward? There can be no hearts above the snow line. Oh, ye frozen heavens, look down here. Ye did beget this luckless child, and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth. While Ahab lives, thou touchest my innermost center, boy. Thou art tied to me by cords woven of my heartstrings. Come, let's down. What's this? Here's Velvet Sharkskin. Intently gazing at Ahab's hand and feeling it. Ah! Now, had poor Pip been felt so kind a thing as this, perhaps he hadn't ne'er been lost. This seems to me, sir, as a, a man-rope, something that weak souls may hold by. Oh, sir, let old Perth come now and rivet these two hands together, the black one with the white, for I will not let this go. Oh, boy, nor will I thee, unless I should thereby drag thee to worse horrors than are here. Come then to my cabin." Lo, ye believers in gods all goodness, and in man all ill, lo, you, see the omniscient gods, oblivious of the suffering man, and man, though idiotic, knowing not what he does, yet full of the sweet things of love and gratitude. Come, I feel prouder leading thee by thy black hand than though I grasped an emperor's. There go two daft ones now, muttered the old manxman, one daft with strength, the other daft with weakness, but here's the end of the rotted line. All dripping, too. Mended, eh? I think we had best have a new line altogether. I'll see Mr. Stubb about it. Chapter 126 The Life Buoy Steering now southeastward by Ahab's leveled steel, and her progress solely determined by Ahab's level log and line, the Pequod held her path towards the equator. Making so long a passage through such unfrequented waters, descrying no ships, and ere long sideways impelled by unvarying trade winds, our waves monotonously mild. All these seemed the strange calm things preluding some riotous and desperate scene. At last, when the ship drew near the outskirts, as it were, of the equatorial fishing ground, and in the deep darkness that goes before the dawn was sailing by a cluster of rocky islets, the watch, when headed by Flask, was startled by a cry so plaintively wild and unearthly, like half-articulated wailings of the ghosts of all Herod's murdered innocents, that one and all they started from their reveries, and for the space of some moments stood, or sat, or leaned all transfixedly listening like the carved Roman slave, while that wild cry remained within hearing. The Christian, or civilized part of the crew, said it was mermaids, and shuddered, but the pagan harpooners remained unappalled. Yet the gray manxman, the oldest mariner of all, declared that the wild thrilling sounds that were heard were the voices of newly drowned men in the sea. Below, in his hammock, Ahab did not hear of this till grey dawn. When he came to the deck, it was then recounted to him by Flask, not unaccompanied with hinted dark meanings. He hollowly laughed, and thus explained the wonder. Those rocky islands the ship had passed were the resort of great numbers of seals, and some young seals that had lost their dams, or some dams that had lost their cubs, must have risen nigh the ship and kept company with her, crying and sobbing with their human sort of wail. 
but this only the more affected some of them because most mariners cherish a very superstitious feeling about seals, arising not only from their peculiar tones when in distress, but also from the human look of their round heads and semi-intelligent faces seen peeringly uprising from the water alongside. In the sea, under certain circumstances, seals have more than once been mistaken for men. But the bodings of the crew were destined to receive a most plausible confirmation in the fate of one of their number that morning. At sunrise this man went from his hammock to the masthead at the fore, and whether it was that he was not yet half-waked from his sleep, for sailors sometimes go aloft in a transition state, whether it was thus with the man there is now no telling, but be that as it may, he had not been long in his perch when a cry was heard. A cry and a rushing, and looking up they saw a falling phantom in the air, and looking down a little tossed heap of white bubbles in the blue of the sea. The life buoy, a long slender cask, was dropped from the stern, where it always hung obedient to a cunning spring. But no hand rose to seize it, and the sun having long beat upon this cask, it had shrunken so that it slowly filled, and that parched wood filled at its every pore, and the studded iron-bound cask soon followed the sailor to the bottom, as if to yield him his pillow, though in sooth but a hard one. And thus the first man of the Pequod that mounted the mast to look out for the white whale on the white whale's own peculiar ground, that man was swallowed up by the deep. But few perhaps thought of that at the time. Indeed, in some sort they were not grieved at this event, at least as a portent, for they regarded it not as a foreshadowing of the evil of the future, but as a fulfillment of an evil already presaged. They declared that now they knew the reason for those wild shrieks they had heard the night before, but again the old manxman said nay. The lost life buoy was now to be replaced. Starbuck was directed to see to it, but as no cask of sufficient lightness could be found, and as in the feverish eagerness of what seemed the approaching crisis of the voyage, all hands were impatient of any toil, but what was directly connected with its final end, Whatever that might prove to be, therefore they were going to leave the ship's stern unprovided with a buoy when, by certain strange signs and innuendos, Queequeg hinted a hint concerning his coffin. A life buoy of a coffin, cried Starbuck, starting. Rather queer, that I should say, said Stubb. It will make a good enough one, said Flask. The carpenter here can arrange it easily. Bring it up, there's nothing else for it, said Starbuck after a melancholy pause. Rig it, carpenter. Do not look at me so, the coffin, I mean. Dost thou hear me? Rig it. And shall I nail down the lid, sir? Moving his hand as with a hammer. Aye. And shall I cock the seam, sir? Moving his hand as with a cocking iron. Aye. And shall I then pay over the same with pitch, sir? Moving his hand as with a pitch pot. Away, what possesses thee to this? Make a life buoy of the coffin, and no more. Mr. Stubb, Mr. Flask, come forward with me. He goes off in a huff, the whole he can endure, at the parts he box. Now I don't like this. I make a leg for Captain Ahab, and he wears it like a gentleman, but I make a bandbox for Queequeg, and he won't put his head into it. Are all my pains to go for nothing with that coffin. And now I'm ordered to make a life buoy of it. It's like turning an old coat. Going to bring the flesh on the other side now. I don't like this cobbling sort of business. I don't like it at all. It's undignified. It's not my place. Let tinkers brats do tinkerings. We are their betters. 
I like to take in hand none but clean, virgin, fair and square mathematical jobs. Something that regularly begins at the beginning and is at the middle when midway and comes to an end at the conclusion. Not a cobbler's job. That's an end in the middle and at the beginning at the end. It's an old woman's tricks to be given cobbling jobs. Lord, what an affection all old women have for tinkers. I know an old woman of 65 who ran away with a bald-headed young tinker once and that's the reason I would never work for lovely widow old women ashore. When I kept my job shop in the vineyard, they might have taken it into their lovely old heads to run off with me, but hey-ho, there are no caps at sea but snow caps. Let me see, nail down the lid, caulk the seams, pay over the same with pitch, batten them down tight, and hang it with snapping over the ship's stern. Were ever such things done before with a coffin? Some superstitious old carpenters now would be tied up in the rigging, ere they would do that job. But I'm made of naughty arrowstook hemlock, I don't budge. Cruppered with a coffin, sailing about with a graveyard tray. But never mind. We workers in woods make bridal bedsteads and card tables as well as coffins and hearses. We work by the month or by the job or by the profit. Not for us to ask why and wherefore of our work unless it to confound cobbling. And then we stash it if we can. <clears throat> I'll do the job now tenderly. I'll have me, let's see, how many of the ship's company all told. But I've forgotten. Anyway, I'll have me 30 separate Turks-headed lifelines, each three feet long, hanging round to the coffin. Then, if the hole go down, there'll be 30 lively fellows all fighting for one coffin, a sight not seen very often beneath the sun. Come hammer, caulking iron, pitch pot, and marlin spike. Let's to it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.